Well, good evening. I'm glad you came back. If you were here this morning, and we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord and learning from His Word. One announcement just to keep in mind, keep praying for our youth as they're away in Boston, place of promise serving this week, and um, ask God to work in their lives and then work in the people that they're serving and that they'll provide the kind of ministry, variety of things that uh, they can do while they're there. And then safety as they travel. It's always, um, I'm always sad when I hear about a bus accident and find out it was a church bus. And... Uh, when youth groups travel, there's always that risk. So pray that they'll get back safely as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the opportunity to share with each other. We know that um, as the body of Christ, it's good for us to be together. And tonight we come uh, to sing, to praise, to give thanks, to listen to your word being taught, uh, to give and to respond. And I pray that you'd help us to do that in in real and meaningful ways for us, that you'd be pleased with what happens throughout this evening together. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your hymnal and turn to 527, 527, and I'm going to irritate you again. <laughs> Would you mind moving a little bit forward and closer together? Uh, I think you'll enjoy singing more, if nothing else, when you can hear people around you. So, uh, if you're towards the back or even if you're towards the edge, just kind of pull in and get close to some other people and sing with them that way. Let's stand together. 527, we'll sing all four stanzas. And uh, as the old invitations say, don't delay to the last stanza. Go ahead and move on the first one. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where from cleansing from sin I cried There to my heart was the blood applied Glory to His name Glory to His name Glory to His name There to my heart was the blood applied Glory to His name
now that you've moved, move again and go greet somebody that you see, or maybe somebody you don't know. Find out who they are. Okay, now that you're seated, let's stand again. <laughs> this morning we talked about shouting and singing, and we talked about uh, giving our hearts to the Lord. And we're going to sing two songs. One's about shouting to the Lord. It's probably more of a song than a shout. And the second one is really about what we've been talking about as um, uh, Pastor Brock has been preaching on being a disciple and following Christ. So we'll sing those two without much interruption. Just join in. Tower of refuge and strength 
Hello, I'm, uh, I'm Ray Kiker. I'm on the board of trustees in the House, serving in the House Committee. And it says here that I'm the leader of the week. And looking back, I didn't think I had that great of a week, so I don't know how I got this honor. But it's not like I pitched a no-hitter yesterday or anything like that. But um, it's, I think it's because it's alphabetical. That's why. Um, but I just wanted to share something real quick. It's neat. Um, God's timing is always perfect. I get to be on the same lineup with my daughter, who will be up next. And um, and I get to, I get to pray for the sandals on a 90 degree night, so I think that's kind of cool too. Um, where's Paul? Hello. No. Um, let's go to prayer for the sandals if we could. Father, thank you for the um, the time we can have together here tonight, and um, just remember Nathan and Corey while they're serving you in Nicaragua. Um, it's hard to comprehend. They have. Um, what they have going on there with their three kids, and they've just um, recently moved. And um, just pray that you would um, continue to help them with the transition there. Thank you for um, what seems like the kids are adapting well um, to the new school, to the new community, and we give you all the praise and thanks for that. Um, just pray for a student retreat that they have coming up um, towards the end of August, um, that that would go well, that that would speak to um, each of the students well and um, just um, give you the praise and thanks for um, them. They're actually halfway through their school year at this point, so they're thankful for that. Um, we also pray, Father, for the um, arrival, the safe arrival of the new director they're going to be have uh, for the 2016 school year. And um, but also, um, Father, pray for um, the new uh, teacher who will be coming to live with the Sandals for the next few months to close out this school year with them. Pray for the the, uh, the tighter quarters that they'll have now sharing their home with the new teacher. Pray that um, the chemistry would be good there and that they'd be a good witness for them as well. Um, Father, we'd also too like to remember the high school missions team up in Boston as they go into week two of their um, time there at Place of Promise. Pray that um, they would just be very um, effective um, hands and feet for you so that um, the residents there and the residents' children can see your love in action. Um, Father, we pray at this time for the offering that we're about to take. We pray that you would um, just help us to uh, use it wisely and where you see best fit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
you go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. I'll warn you ahead of time, we're going to lots of places tonight. So your fingers have to be ready, or your smartphone, whatever it is, if you need to take your shortcuts. Why don't you think about something for a second? Don't necessarily answer this out loud, or raise your hand. But I wonder how many times many of you feel spiritually you don't matter. Ever feel spiritually don't matter? Or that spiritually nobody notices what you do? Or what you do for God doesn't seem to be real important? Some of you are smiling, so I know you're thinking it. Or do you ever feel that spiritually you're less capable than other people? That in comparison to other people, if you look at them spiritually, you kind of don't match up? Keep those in mind, will you? Tonight, occasionally when I'm speaking, we have been studying in the mornings the idea of discipleship, the fact we're disciples. And so sometimes when I'm in on Sunday night, I think it's good to look at some of those in Scripture who were disciples to give us some examples to look at, to understand some lessons we can kind of learn from this as they're doing the walk of discipleship just like we are. Because sometimes we forget these are real people just like us doing real things in real places, and they're no different than we are in how they're walking. And so we can learn some great lessons from them. So you're in John chapter 1. The first, we're going to look at two tonight. The first we're going to look at is one of the 12, one of the original 12, Andrew. And here in John 1, just look at some of his background, the account of him, John 1, 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So he's originally from Bethsaida, which is, I didn't put a map up tonight, it's on the north end of the, of the Sea of Galilee. On the other side from where they live was Capernaum, and we find out later they had gone to Capernaum and were centered in Capernaum where they were fishing. That's where Jesus found them. You also, I'm sure you know in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So this is Peter's brother. So because of that, we know the name of their father because we're told in another passage that it was Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon, son of Jonah, son of John. And so that would have been Andrew's father. So pretty much from their background, that's all we know of them. He's a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, Centered at Capernaum, and his partner in business is his brother, Peter. Now, here in John 1, we see something else about him. Verse 35. It says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. 
Here you have two disciples of John the Baptist, one of which is Andrew. John points out the one that he was proclaiming. Jesus just walked by, the Lamb of God. And one of the first two who follows Jesus is Andrew. And you see in verse 39, Jesus says, come and you will see. He's really saying, follow me. Because we see in verse 40, one of the ones who followed was Andrew. So really, Andrew is one of the first two to be called by Jesus. How's that for a pretty good thing to feather in your cap? That you're one of the first two that Jesus calls to be a disciple. Now, they didn't stay with him at this time. They went back fishing for a few months. Understand, this was the initial call. There's a second call Jesus makes. On the screen, it's in Matthew 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting that in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So here's where Jesus called them from their vocation to also leave it all and come. So here's Andrew, one of the first two for Jesus to say, come follow me. But, where does it go from there as one of the twelve? When you study Andrew in the Gospels, Andrew's activity is fairly low. He's not the center of attention. In fact, most of the times, he's left out of the action. When you see all twelve there, of course, Andrew's there, but you have a number of times when Jesus is only one a small group. And most of the time, Andrew's not in those passages. In fact, what's interesting, the passage we just read in Matthew 4 where they were called from their boats, when Luke talks about that passage in Luke 5, Luke doesn't even mention Andrew's name. He says, Simon, Peter, James, and John brought their boats to land, left everything, and followed him. He's not even mentioned by Luke. Other places. Matthew 17, 1, the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Mark 5, this is when he went to Jairus' daughter and raised her from the dead. And Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. In Mark 14, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So the major action points, Andrew's not there. There's only one time that Andrew's in on the action when it's just a smaller group. It's in Mark 13, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. It's the only time he's in this kind of inner circle that Jesus has. So after his initial calling, and we know he's one of the twelve when the twelve are around, in the real important circumstances when Jesus has these three inner circle there, Andrew's not there. Now how do you think you'd react to that? Andrew doesn't seem to resent those in the spotlight. In fact, we're still in John 1. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon 
and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Now question, do you think Andrew knew what Peter was really like? That Peter was a control freak? That Peter tried to take everything over? That Peter would kind of overshadow everybody? And the answer is, he knew his brother. And yet he brings him. And not only that, look what happens. We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, how come Andrew didn't get a new name? As soon as he sees Peter, Peter gets a new name, Rock. What's the deal there? He doesn't seem to have a problem not being in the spotlight. In fact, all we can find from Andrew is he's pleased to do what he can with the gifts he has. What's the first thing he does in verses 41 and 42? When he finds Jesus, the first thing he does is what? What did he just do? Speak out loud. He found his brother and brought Peter. Is that something he could do? Yeah. He could find Peter and bring him. Go to John 6. John 6, most of you know what happens. Verse 1, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, 200 paydays worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? The other disciples are throwing up their hands saying, What do we do? What's Andrew do? finds a boy with fish and loaves, brings him to Jesus, and assumes that Jesus can do something with this. He doesn't know what. But he brings an inconspicuous boy with a little lunch to Jesus, assuming Jesus can do something with this. Isn't it interesting here, in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, and then notice what it has to say. Simon Peter's brother. He's still in Peter's shadow. But it's okay. Because he figured, whatever I can do, if I can bring a little boy with five loaves and two fish, Jesus can do something with it, even though I don't know. So he does something with his ability. Here's what he seems to be able to do. Something we can affirm about Andrew is he seemed to see value in people. Right? He's the means by which some others are introduced to Jesus. We've already got Peter. We've got the little boy. Look over in John 12. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. There were Greeks in that area. They spoke Greek and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. 
Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. What does Andrew want to do? Bring these guys to Jesus. Now, in this case, Jesus says, no, my time's not there yet. We're not going to do that. But Philip knows the person who know what to do with people, because you don't. nobody wants to mess with Greeks, but the person who knows what to do with people is Andrew. Let's take him to Andrew. And Andrew says, let's go take him, hopefully, to Jesus. Even though Jesus says no. What do we learn here? Looking at Andrew, we don't know a lot about him as a disciple. But he does give us some aid in seeing the value of inconspicuous service. If I ask you, who's more important, Peter or Andrew? Most of us would say who? Be honest. Oh, Peter, he preached to thousands. He's the leader of the group. And yet, who brought him? Andrew. If Andrew hadn't brought Peter, was Andrew just as important a disciple as Peter was in Jesus' eyes? The answer is, yeah, because Andrew can do what he can do. Peter can do what he can do. Andrew doesn't seem to have a problem not being in the inner circle, so he just does whatever he can do when he does it. Here's a question. How do we determine who's most valuable in the church? It's got to be the ones up here, right? Isn't that the way it works? 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. You see that last phrase there? Who does God say is the most important in the body? Now, we're all equally important. The little person. The part that lacks the visibility. The part that tends to lack the honor for what's going on. We may say, well, nobody notices what we're doing. Does God notice what we're doing, no matter what it is? No matter if it's behind the scenes, no matter if it's just sitting and praying, and that's all you can do? Does God notice that? According to this passage, He does. In fact, He elevates that. He thinks that's a great thing. We tend to put levels on people that this person is, Peter is the greatest one, or the Apostle Paul. Andrew, eh, he's kind of at the bottom. Not in God's eyes. He did what he could with what he had whenever he could, and for Jesus, that was fine. And God says, that's your goal, to do what you can with what you have. You don't have to worry about what other people are doing. By the way, you understand Peter had the same problem? Remember in John 21, when Jesus said to Peter, this is what's going to happen to you in your life. You're going to have some problems. You're not going to be able to take care of yourself. And Peter turns and sees John, and he says, what about that guy? How come he's not getting... Isn't it amazing how we all tend to do that? 
Instead of using our own abilities and what we can do, where we can do it, we try to look at other people. And Andrew's our first indicator here. That's not what you do. You be the disciple you can be with the gifts you have, and God notices, and God pays attention, and God says, you know what? Even if nobody else notices, I've decided you get greater honor than the other part that really doesn't need it. What do you know about how Andrew ended up? We don't know. Again, somebody who disappears, even from history, he's not recorded much. We don't know what happened to Andrew after Pentecost. Tradition says he took the gospel north. He's the patron saint of Russia. And he's said to have been crucified in Greece, Achaia. We assume he was martyred, because they all were but John. But we don't know much. By the way, do we need to know much? Other than the fact he was called, he followed, he did what he could to the best of his ability... And that was fine with God, and that was fine with Andrew, evidently. So that's number one, one of the twelve. How about a second one? Go to Matthew 13. My other question to you was, how many times did we compare ourselves to other people spiritually? Don't we feel as capable as other people spiritually? If we compare ourselves spiritually to them, or compare ourselves as disciples to them, we don't think we're as capable as they are. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. How many brothers did Jesus have? How many? Some of you don't know. A bunch of chickens, they won't say. How many sisters did he have? Uh, We don't know. Well, let's figure it out first. In John 13, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? You notice Judas is a pretty common name there in the New Testament. You ever figure that out? Don't see too many of those now. And are not all his sisters with us? I'm not told how many sisters. There's at least two because it's plural. And since it says all, we assume there's probably more than two. Okay, maybe at least three. So Jesus has four brothers and at least two, maybe three sisters. And we're going to look at one of them, James. He's not one of the twelve that's called. But we're going to look at him in discipleship. But there's a first question I have to ask you. What did James think of Jesus during his earthly ministry? And most of you know the answer to this. While we're here, look at verse 53. We start, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown... He taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Then our question, isn't this the carpenter's son? Verse 56, And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Interesting, that comment about the prophet in the hometown, but he mentions his own home, doesn't he? No honor in his household and did nothing there because of unbelief, which we assume also includes his household. In Mark 3, When Jesus was preaching, one of the times his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. His family thought he was nuts. 
Look over at John chapter 7. Back to the book of John. This is the more telling one on what his family thought of his earthly ministry. John 7, starting in verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. What are his brothers telling him to do here? Go do what? Go get yourself killed. Nice guys. How's that for a nice family? He knew he'd be, they knew he'd be killed to go to Judea. So they said, hey, you shouldn't be in secret. Why don't you go to Judea? Four nice brothers. And then the comment, even his brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. Now it gets us a question, doesn't it? His whole family, brothers and sisters, but here we're just asking, we're going to be talking about James. Why did James not believe in him? And if I ask you for reasons, we get all sorts of them. Now, Scripture doesn't actually tell us. We have to conjecture a little bit from Scripture as to why. But as we go over some of these things, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have unsaved relatives, unsaved family? Almost everybody in the room. As we go over this list, I want you to think about your unsaved relatives. Because here we're using James for kind of a backward example. He's the example of the family member who doesn't believe as opposed to the disciple who is the believer in the household. And in this case, the disciple who's showing us discipleship is Jesus. Everybody got that? So Jesus is demonstrating in his life what a disciple should be. In fact, you sang that tonight. How you serve, I'll serve. It's the example of discipleship. And so we're going to try to figure out, all right, if Jesus is showing in his family what a disciple should really be, why then didn't his family believe on him? Why didn't they accept him? Go back to the book of Luke. We're going to start in verse chapter 2 of Luke. And again, we're using a little imagination tonight, but it's not hard to figure some of these out from some of these verses. But it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out why they didn't believe. In Luke 2, here's the first thing we see. Remember, James grows up with Jesus, so do his brothers. And Jesus was without peer in intellect and wisdom. Here in Luke 2. Verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And then we know what happens. They leave, they think Jesus is with somebody in the group, he's not. So after three days, verse 46, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 12-year-old Jesus, astounding rabbis. 
And then verse 52 says, from there, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now you're thinking you're James. You're growing up with this guy, with Jesus in your house. Would it possibly be a little intimidating to start with? Had to be. Jesus had all the answers. Here's a second one. Is it probable that Mary and Joseph treated Jesus differently? How could they not? Now, it's not a good thing to have favorites. Everybody understands that? But every parent says they don't have favorite kids, but they do. So don't lie to me. Or not favorite grandkids. I know how it works. You all do. You just won't admit it. How do you, who do you know from Scripture played favorites with their kids? You think of anybody? You have to answer in their loud voice. That's not your loud voice. Come on, give me a break. Who did? Jacob. Jacob and Esau. You've got that play that went on. Who else got played favorite? Somebody said Isaac down here. Got played favorite. Abraham played favorites with Isaac over Ishmael. Who's the leading example of this deal of having a favorite kid? Joseph. There's your leading one, isn't it? Where his parent, his father played so many favorites, the other brothers wanted to kill him. Okay? So it's probable that Mary and Joseph treated him differently. Think about Jesus' birth. How could that not help you treat him differently? When you're thinking of that night and everything you thought about and everything God told you. Remember, Mary and Joseph are human. They're fallible. And some of you know what happens in a family. We just sent some examples from Scripture. In a family where somebody is playing favorites with kids, you know what happens with the other kids. By the way, do kids know you're playing favorites? Just shake your head yes. Yeah, we think we covered up. They're not stupid. How many of you were your parents' favorites? Come on, raise your hand. Yeah, I knew Ray had to raise his hand there. And Judy's going, yeah, right. You shouldn't do it when your mother's sitting here, Ray. That doesn't help. You understand number three. And again, you're thinking of your unsaved relatives here now. You can't necessarily have the first two. But starting with the first one, you can. His family saw him as just one of them. We read that back in Matthew 13, right? He's the carpenter's son. He has these four, he's just one of our brothers. Whether they're sisters or brothers, he's just one of the brothers. They didn't necessarily see him as the Messiah. And evidently, Mary and Joseph didn't do a good job getting that across because you realize even Mary was struggling. She was with the family when they thought he was nuts. And they had to come get him. So something even changed with Mary in some of this. But here they are growing up with him, and he's just one of them. Some of you may know that. You may have brothers or sisters who are well-known for something. But to you, they're just brothers and sisters. My father was a pastor for a number of years. And so everybody, oh, everybody remembers him as a pastor. He was just my dad. I mean, you just think of him as your father. You know some of the problems they have from that standpoint. But here's your problem. They just saw him as one of them. Again, do your family members necessarily see you? Do they remember what you were? How you grew up? All the dumb things you did? Yeah. I'll give me a fourth one. 
I want you to turn to Luke 4. You realize Jesus' message offended them also. Here in Luke 4, it's kind of an uh, expansion of the Matthew passage. Verse 16, He comes to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and He stood up to read. And He reads from the prophet Isaiah. And then He says in verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now at verse 22, they all spoke well of Him and marveled the gracious words coming from His mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Notice they're still thinking he's one of them. And he says to them, Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Where's all the miracles? And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. She was also not a Jew. And there were many lepers in Israel in the name of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, again, who was not a Jew. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You realize it's probable his brothers were there. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. His message was offensive to the people in his hometown, to many Jews. That would have included his family. What he was saying did not go over well with them. Anybody kind of identifying this right now? How about fifthly? Look at Luke 8. Do you understand he actually chose other people over his family? Matthew 8, 19, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You mean you're putting other believers over family? Yeah. That didn't go over well. Think of this, number six. His consistent, extraordinary moral character would have been difficult for them to be around. Think about growing up with a brother who never sinned. I know some of you think you didn't. You were the perfect kid, right? Yeah, right. I know better. And so do you. But they were with the perfect brother, the perfect son. Would that be hard to deal with? Yeah. Now, I don't think he preached to them or kind of held it over them like Joseph did. Remember what Joseph did, which wasn't too smart? Had the dream, then he tells his father and brothers, guess what, guys? I dreamed you're all going to bow down to me. That doesn't go over well with your family. I think Jesus did what Peter records in 1 Peter chapter 3. Have Sam hit the down arrow up there, if you will. 
says this, even though it's not talking about wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I think that's what happened. And initially, it's not necessarily a nice response to it. The guilt is a problem for the unsaved. It's supposed to bring them about eventually, but it takes a while. And I think number seven is also a problem for them. You realize Jesus never changed his behavior or his beliefs when he was around them, no matter what, he, what they said or did, no matter what they tried. He would not change his message. He would not change his focus. He wouldn't change anything about himself, no matter what his family wanted. How many times do we do the opposite? We'll compromise thinking, well, that'll make family be more receptive to what I say if I kind of compromise what I believe. You understand it doesn't work that way? It only makes it worse. And so his family is seeing him, assuming sometime he'll change and adapt to us, and he never does. Again, a verse in Peter. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, here's the deal. They will not like it. In fact, they'll think you're just holier than thou. You're a hypocrite. Everybody heard the words? Turn to Luke 12. Let me remind you of something. And James reminds us of this. Jesus said, what would happen when there's somebody in the family who's a believer and others aren't. Look at verse 52, or verse 51. And do you understand in this passage, Jesus is also referring to his own situation? Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there'll be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Had Jesus experienced this? The answer is, yep. Brothers and sisters and mother against him. Understanding, if you choose to be a disciple the way Jesus says to be one, we are disciples. But if we choose to live like one, it will be a natural divider. It's going to happen. I'll remind you of the second part. Just because you decide to be a disciple following the way Jesus says, is that a guarantee your relatives will get saved? Yes or no? No guarantee. You realize they were with Jesus for 33 years and it made no difference. After 33 years, it will make a difference. We'll see that in a second. But for 33 years, they had the perfect witness with them, and it didn't make a difference. Now, does that mean we should give up hope on our unsaved relatives? The answer is no. We need to keep following Christ, showing the example we have to show in spite of the conflict, in spite of the disbelief, in spite of all the negative we get. Jesus is our first example that that's what you have to do anyway. You follow him, and everything else is going to go the way it's going to go. But none of it's a guarantee. I've had people say, well, I was doing what God wanted. Why won't he save my family? This is not a give-and-take deal. God doesn't owe us anything. He just says, you follow me. I take care of the rest. But don't give up hope, because we do see that here with James, don't we? 
Even though for 33 years his family does not believe, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Paul's talking about what happened after Jesus' resurrection. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. You realize after his resurrection, he specifically goes to James. Does it make a difference? Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascends. The disciples, after they stand looking a while, are told to get busy doing what they're supposed to do. They go to Jerusalem in verse 12. They enter the upper room in verse 13. You have the disciples there. And verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And the word in the Greek there is really better the word siblings. It probably means both his brothers and sisters were all there. And so the resurrected Lord made the difference evidently in their lives, and they do believe. But we're talking about James. What happens to James after he's saved? What do we know happens to him? Go to Acts 15. Told you we'd be doing a lot of turning tonight. Acts 15, we see a council at the church in Jerusalem. We'll talk about it in a little bit. During this council, verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Evidently, James became the leader of the church and the council at Jerusalem. We somewhat know this also from Galatians 2. Where the Apostle Paul says this, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and when James and Cephas, who's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. By this time, he's now a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Was he as capable as his older brother? The answer is no. Didn't matter. He could never be as capable as his older brother. None of us can be. But in this case, that doesn't matter anymore. The past doesn't matter. It's what he's doing now. And now he has become the leader of that church. Stick something here, because we'll be back in Acts. We're going to be back. See, can you handle two books at once? This will be fun. Go over to the book of James. Based on the process of elimination of all those named James in the New Testament, we assume the book of James was written by Jesus' brother. But a verse we've looked at in relation to being disciples is John 8. That's on the screen. And it says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You realize it's not about abilities. It's not about capabilities. It's about abiding. It's not about comparing my abilities or capabilities to anybody else. It's about being abiding in his word and that I'm truly his disciples. And so here's James going to give us an illustration about abiding in his word. Now, he didn't believe in Jesus till Jesus 
was 33 years old. James would have been less old than that. But he evidently heard a lot of what Jesus taught because he's around him quite a bit. And he would have learned quite a bit afterwards. This is a little later in time. It's not right after Jesus has ascended. But if I ask you the theme of the book of James, you would tell me what? Faith without works is dead. Well, what faith is he talking about? And what works is he talking about? He's talking about James 1.22. Be doers of the word. That's abiding in the word. That's the works you are. he is talking about. Faith without doing what scripture says to do is actually not faith in God at all. It's not faith in his word at all. So I wonder if we can just walk through briefly and figure it out. How does James show what he believes? How does he show what he abides in, in this book? And here's the first one. Look at James 1, verse 9. And I think James is describing himself personally. Notice what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You think he's thinking about himself with his brother? I think he is. And in, John, in James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. Now, how does he demonstrate this humility he talks about? How many of you know somebody who's a name dropper? They like to drop names of all these important people they've met, and they can always find a name that's better than yours. So if you were James, whose name would you drop to impress people? I'm Jesus' brother. Wouldn't you think about saying that? James 1.1. James, a servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? I am my brother's slave. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I'm nothing in comparison to my brother. And do you think he's okay with that? You realize he grew up with Jesus. He probably slept in the same bed with Jesus. And here he is describing himself as Jesus' slave, and this is the Lord of glory. What a turnaround, isn't it? To understand humility in the light of that. It's not a comparison. This is not a contest. This is not a, a game that we figure out who's better spiritually. This is just reminding ourselves, how do things work? How about James 1, verse 5? You know that. If anybody lasts wisdom, let him do what? Ask of God, well, what kind of wisdom are you looking for? Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls and be doers of the word and not hearers only. So where do I find his, God's wisdom? I find it in his word, by his Holy Spirit making me aware of what I need to do when I ask for it. You're keeping your finger in James and going back to Acts 15. Acts 15 is the council of Jerusalem. And what they're trying to figure out is, did Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved? Remember the early church was pretty much all Jewish. And Peter gets to get connection with the Gentiles. Paul's going to get connection with the Gentiles. And now the Jews are struggling. How do we answer this question? Do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to be saved? Because we're the chosen people. Notice how James answers this. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simeon or Simon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Where did James get his answer for the question? Scripture. He finds the Old Testament passage that applies and said, guys, here's where we find the answer. We use God's word. That's our wisdom. In relation to this same, you can stay here and ask for a second. I'll refer to James. You know, in James, there is a lot of concentration on the tongue in there. We're told in 119, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 26, if anybody thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Chapter 3, the first 12 verses talk about the tongue no man can tame. It's a fire. The understanding is only God can tame it. We've got to let God control our tongues. So what happens here in Acts 14? You realize in chapter 6, or chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles, the elders, were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, that's a nice way to say they were going at it. Peter stands up and says something. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done to them. And after they finished speaking... James replied, isn't it interesting, he listens to everybody else before he answers. He doesn't jump in with his ideas until everybody has spoken, and then James says, all right, guys, here's the answer from Scripture. What a great indicator of how do you control your tongue. Third part of this, we won't go to James 3.13, but it reminds us, if you want to use God's wisdom in any situation... You use what makes for peace. Because if you're using God's wisdom, you want to be at peace with other people. You realize in this same chapter in Acts 15, James does what makes for peace. Verse 19, Therefore my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Isn't it interesting? He's concerned about the Gentiles. He's not concerned about the Jews in Jerusalem. He's not concerned about himself. He wants to do what makes for peace in this situation. I'll give you another one, though. Go to Acts 21. The Apostle Paul comes to Jerusalem and goes to James for advice on a situation. Verse 17, Paul saying, when we came to Luke is saying, when he came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, now even though it says they, remember he goes into James. So James is the one who's probably telling him this. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. 
Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And verse 26 says, Paul took the men the next day, purified himself with them, went in the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. You understand James is saying, look, you do what makes for peace with the Jews. Don't stir them up. You show them you have respect for the law. Back in James 1. You can turn back to that. I won't send you back to Acts. Something else James focuses on in his book is care of the poor. Paying attention to individuals. Verse 27 of James 1. Religious that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Chapter 2, 1 to 8, he reminds himself, you shouldn't show partiality to somebody who's rich over somebody who's poor. You should take care of the poor one who comes in. In chapter 5, he chews out the rich people who are not taking care of their workers, their servants, aren't caring for them the way they should be caring for them. If you read Acts chapters 4 and 5, and you remember the early church in Jerusalem, you realize the one emphasis they really had was take care of people who had needs. You remember everybody didn't have any need. They gave up everything they had. Remember Jesus said, if you're my disciple, renounce all you have and follow me. And the early church did that. Who was their leader? James. And nobody had a need in there. In fact, Galatians 2.10, when James comes to Paul with Peter and John, they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Very interesting, isn't it? James is doing what Jesus said to do and demonstrating in his life and encouraging others to do the same. I'll show you one more in James 5. James shows us what's the important job we have as disciples And again, I think in verse 19, he's referring especially to himself. We know what he was like before he was saved. My brothers, verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Who went specifically to James? Jesus, and brought him back. The Great Commission... Go into all the world and make disciples. And James says, you want to know what's the most important thing you can do? Share the gospel and save them from death. Because somebody did that for me. The one I'm a slave to. You realize James did this until his death. James is recorded specifically in history by Josephus. And Josephus records that the Jewish religious leaders put James to death by stoning because James wouldn't stop doing what he was doing. And so he lost his life. You ever think, I'll never be able to do anything, I'm not as spiritual as capable as somebody else? James had the most capable spiritual person he could ever try to follow, and he just did what he could as following his disciples. Remind you again, 
These guys are real people. They're just like us. We obey Christ, do what he says, be a disciple, and God uses whatever we do, however he wants to use it. Let's pray. Lord, it is so great that you give us examples in Scripture that we can relate to. In our own lives, we see many of the same struggles and problems, and you've given us the solutions through your word and the examples of those who did what you asked them to do. Help us to follow as well as they followed. Even though we know they had problems, they had times of unbelief, they were sinners just like we are, they trusted you to do what they could. And we pray you'd help us to do the same. In your name we pray. Amen. 378. Let's just sing one stanza, the first stanza, telling the Lord, okay, I have a life and I'm going to give it to you. Let's stand and sing it together. 378, just the first stanza. Father, this week, make us receptive to your Holy Spirit. May we listen. May we not quench him. May we not grieve him. But may we, with his help, follow you the way we've been asked to do that. Amen.